0: If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.
1: There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national, and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us.
2: And top of the morning to you. Welcome to Green Laugh Radio on 3CR. It's Friday morning. It's seven o'clock. Yay. 7.03. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And what a glorious time of the day to be awake.
3: Yeah, thanks, Zane. (laughs) Is that sarcastic? I don't think it is, is it? I think you're actually happy.
2: I don't know. I'm not a morning person. But I'm here. Nothing makes me feel better than getting up really early (laughs) in the morning. Uh,
0: Okay.
2: So shout out to all those people that are starting work. Yep. At 7am, cranking a bit of 3CR. Yep. Selling your labor to, Where We're with you. We're
3: up. We're awake. That's all that matters. <laughs>
2: yeah, we're all in this together.
3: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, so we've got a packed lineup today. Um, so we have uh, three different interviews today. So we've got someone who's going to be talking about um, just doing a reflection on S11, um, especially in the lead up to um, the IMARC blockade next week, and we'll give details on that. Um, then we've got uh, an interview with an activist who has um, who talks about the the negative impacts of mining on local communities. Um, she's a long term activist. Um, and against coal mining in her community. And then we've also got another uh, interview um, in regards to the Chilean uprising, and uh, that's from a Sydney academic who uh, specialises in uh, Latin American politics. So it's pretty packed. Um, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things. I mean, what is happening in the world right now? People are uprising all over the place. Um, and, yeah, so we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. Um, but first I just wanted to... Um, Say, so 3CR has a fundraiser. It's called Radio Craft. It's uh, calling all creatives. Do you make things or know someone who does? We're seeking donations across all craft forms for an auction in December. Um we still have a little way to go to reach our radiothon target for the year uh, so it'd be wonderful uh, if people who are artsy uh, you know craft people um, could support the station with a craft donation so you know do you knit do you make felt toys do you paint um, a whole bunch of different things whatever kind of crafty thing that you do hundred percent of the sales from the hundred uh, percent of the profits from sales will go to the three 3C, to three CR to keep our radio Uh, A show funded for another year And a collection box for donations and registration forms Is at reception here at the 3CR office in Collingwood Um, For more information or if you have any questions uh, You can email radiocraft3cr At gmail.com Or you can phone 0415 656 403. And the details of the venue and date for the auction will be announced soon. So that's pretty exciting. And if you know anyone who is crafty and artsy and who might want to get involved to help make sure that we raise all of the funds for 3CR to keep us going, um, give the station a call. Fantastic.
2: Sweetly. Um, It's worth mentioning to you that we're coming at you from... The 3CR studios, which are built on the unceded lands, of the traditional nation of the Wurundjeri people, of the Kulin Nation. And, uh, yeah, sovereignty was never ceded. And shout out to um, elders past, present and emerging, because this always was and always will be Aboriginal land.
3: Indeed. Um, and I want to talk a little bit later on the show about uh, the book. I think I've spoken about it before, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. Oh, cool. Just talking. I'm reading it at the moment. Absolutely fascinated. Uh, just there's some facts in it that are just amazing that we just never get, we never talk about, we never get, you know, taught in school. Mm. Um, and it's really only coming to light because we have always seen um, First Nation cultures through the light of uh, Western colonists. And, um, you know, we, We've we've kind of overlooked these amazing technologies that they had, and these fantastic, um, you know, villages and uh, agricultural technology. All of these things people don't actually necessarily um, associate that with First Nations people. But it was it we, we they had kilometres, fields and fields of native. Um, uh, tubers of native grains, uh, they had technologies to process these. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, mm. I can talk a little bit on that later. But uh, yeah. I
2: want to borrow that when you're finished. Reading. Oh,
3: absolutely. <laughs> L- yeah, line up. There's a few other people. It's absolutely amazing. I do recommend um, Bruce Pascoe's black, a Dark Emu. It really reads like it sucks you in. It's not just this fact book. It's this kind Mm. of he leads you on a story, um, and you really get sucked in by it. It's absolutely amazing.
2: Yeah, I got a copy for my grandmother for Christmas. I think it was last year or the year before, Mm. and I kind of I got halfway through the book, but I didn't quite finish it. And so Mm. I've been really wanting to read it for ages (laughs) because it's so good.
3: It is. Yeah, he's he's got he's got a compelling way of writing. and, yeah, he just collects – he's just gone and collected all of these accounts um, that have, have um, been made by, you know, um, Mitchell and Hume and um, all of these, uh, you know, explorers who basically got it wrong in a lot of instances because they didn't think that First Nations people could be doing all of this stuff, you know. Yeah, mm. it's pretty amazing, yeah.
2: Have you seen the film by Warwick Thornton, We Don't Need a Map?
3: No, I haven't. Can you tell me about that?
2: I cannot highly enough recommend this. It's a really yeah. good film. It's really, it's really witty and entertaining and it's mm. got a bunch of interviews. And the basic story is in 2005, there was the Cronulla riots. Mm. And then shortly after the Cronulla riots, um, the Sydney big day out on January 26th, you had these, Dickheads with Australian flags walking around, going, you know, punch the, you know, kiss the flag or I'll punch you in the face kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And Warwick Thornton, who's this Aboriginal filmmaker and director, he made Samson and Delilah and a bunch of other stuff. He sort of said, oh, the Australian flag or the Southern Cross is the new swastika for Australia. Mm. This was very controversial. A bunch of right wing shock jocks or whatever attacked him for making that statement. And then subsequently, he decided to investigate the Southern Cross and he wanted to try and challenge his own views, I guess, in a sense, and go and interview a bunch of white people with Southern Cross tattoos and be like, why, what what was your thinking here? Yeah. Uh, But also look at Southern Cross imagery and it's, it's significance in, in Aboriginal culture. And obviously mm. there's 500 different Aboriginal nations on this continent and it's not always the same meaning of the Aboriginal cross of, oh, sorry, of the Southern cross to Aboriginal, um, culture. So he spoke to a tribe from up near, um, Darwin and my, um, brain is not very good. I can't remember the name of the, um, aboriginal nations in question but he spoke to one tribe up in near darwin and then another group down near um alice springs and the, the meaning of the southern cross was a little bit different in each of those places but i think in both cases there was this imagery of like the southern cross is this vessel or boat which takes the human spirit after you die to another place Um, and and so the spirits of your ancestors when you look up at the Southern Cross are there and they're traveling to another place so that was really kind of interesting to see what the Southern Cross meant in that culture and it it was sort of there was a bit of a it had this sort of imagery of a catalyst or something transformative and going from A to B Mm. And then he spoke to a bunch of white folk and basically what he was able to tease out is that a bunch of these white people want something that's unique about Australia and they, they kind of want something to latch onto to say, yeah, I'm proud to be an Aussie.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, and Warwick Thornton, the conclusion of this film, he's kind of saying it's really interesting, um, that Australians want something unique about this continent to latch onto. And they're getting these simplistic selling cross tattoos, but maybe at some point they'll discover that there is something really unique out there, yeah. which is Aboriginal culture. <laughs> and maybe they'll yeah. discover that and start taking some pride in the heritage of this continent. And it was really kind of, I think really clever and really mm. sort of hopeful, the, the message coming out of this. And, and Boric Thornton was like, I, One of the people he interviewed had the Southern Cross tattoo and then later got it removed with a laser because they're like, not comfortable with With the connotations. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, you know, I I don't, he kind of revisited his view of the Southern Cross as the new swastika. And he's like, I try not to um, jump to conclusions about people with a Southern Cross tat these days and why they got that. Like mm. there's kind of a diversity of reasons, but the reason I thought of that too is there was a brand of uh, windmill called Southern Cross, and so during colonization, as the farmers kind of spread out and took the sheep like one part of it talks about it the, the the herds of sheep going from Melbourne all the way across to Adelaide. As farmers mm. spread out and set up farms and the endless amount of Aboriginal fu- food production between here and there that's yes. been built up yeah. over millennia. Yep. And the sheep just go through and bloody vacuum it all up. This is exactly
3: what I was gonna talk about. Wipe it out. Yeah, in with Bruce Pascoe's um book, yeah.
2: And with it these windmills. So every mm. every spring that Aboriginal people would rely on to, to get drinking water along come these bloody windmills and get put in, suck the things dry and and attract a bunch of cattle that come in and, you know, crap in the mm. water and muddy it up so that these are no longer viable sources of drinking water for Aboriginal people.
3: Yeah. Well, I may as well talk about um, Bruce Pascoe's... Can you just mention that documentary again, just for the listeners who might have come in We Don't now.
2: Need a Map by Warwick Thornton.
3: Excellent. And do you know where it is available?
2: Uh, I, I'm not... I, I'm not sure. I think I watched yeah. it on SBS online. It might be yeah. on... It's, it's got to be on some streaming platform, I'm yeah. sure. I'm not sure which one. But if you just Google it, I'm yes. sure you'll We don't need it. a
3: map by Warwick...
2: Warwick Thornton. Thornton,
3: yeah. Actually, just on that note... Um, I watched this and I'm going to have to, maybe we should put this up when, when we, um, when we do the, uh, the actual putting up of the radio show online. Maybe we'll just pop, um, the names of these uh, documentaries and books, et cetera, up there. Um, but there was, I just watched, I think it was about half an hour. It's, it's, um, this, uh, kind of satirical documentary that's, uh, set it. Well, it was made in the 1980s, I think. It's called Barbecue, barbecue area. area. Do you know about that? Yeah. It's it was classy, absolutely isn't it? amazing. Um, yeah. so for the listeners who don't know about Barbecue Area, um, it's, it's basically a satirical take on what if, uh, white people were the first people here. And, um, indigenous or First Nations people were the people who came in and did what white people, uh, did. So one of the first scenes, um, and it's quite like, it's quite farcical. It's great. Like it makes you, really makes you think, but, um, there's a whole bunch of white people in a park having a barbecue. Cause you know, that's what we do. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then there were whole, there was just this, um, this boatload of, of, uh, First Nations people in uniform and they come along. And they step off the um, the boat and these people are like, Oh, what's going on? Who are these people? And um the the, the leader of the, the uniformed uh, you know First Nations contingent said, What is the name of this place? And someone goes, Oh mate, it's it's just a barbecue area And they're like and they're like, Hmm, barbecue area. I like that native name. I think we'll keep it. <laughs> and yeah. so the name of this country in this documentary, this this kind of satirical documentary is barbecue area. Mm. And they just go through and um the the person who is the main narrator, a woman, so First Nations woman, she's going along and talking about, um, you know, white people and their communities and how they have this simple kind of, um, you know, this simple kind of peacefulness and you mm. know, and they, they they do really well with what they have and all of these sort of things and <clears throat> you get this kind of. Um,
2: Kind of just taking it's, the piss out of white people. It absolutely
3: is. And <laughs> <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. You have all of these, um, you know, uh so First Nations politician, he's like, well, you know, we've just got to make sure that they, you know, they, they do as well as they can, you know, they've mm. got, if we give them some opportunities, they might be able to do some things. And then <laughs> there's a head of police also, again, First Nations, because it's all flipped over and he's like, yes, well. You know, they they're pretty they're a pretty um violent lot. You know, <laughs> we've really got to control them and stuff like that. And then they goes and talks about um and she goes and and lives the the main narrator she goes and lives with this white family for six months etc. And it really is the way that they speak about, um, you know, the white people and white communities. It's, and it, the whole flipped over thing really kind of gives you food for thought. Mm. And I would recommend it. I think it's about half an hour. And I think I watched the link on YouTube and we'll have to put up at how barbecue area is spelt because it is a little bit weird <laughs> spelling. Mm. Um, but which we'll I that think up. is also yeah.
2: a, a reference to, well, I mean, Aboriginal people didn't have written language, it was more mm. of a spoken tradition, but uh, that that is also a reference, I think, to uh white people come in, would ask Aboriginal people, what is this place? They would say, oh, this is like the place down by the river. Yeah. And then they go, oh, okay, so that's obviously the name of this whole area or something. Yeah. And then they would sort of bastardise the, they'd write it the down, name of it. down. And-
3: yeah. Well, it's like, um, I can't remember where it is. It's Lake Carjelico, but Carjelico, and they said, what is this? And, uh, the First Nations people said it's. Carjelico, which is lake, so it's actually lake lake.
0: <laughs>
3: mm. <laughs> that kind of thing. So yeah, no, definitely check that out as well. Um, yeah, yeah it's really clever. Yeah, and with Bruce Pascoe's uh, book. So Bruce published uh, Dark Emu in 2016, and we'll pop all the details um, on on the um, on the website, the 3CR website. But um, yeah, so Bruce has gone through, and he has absolutely poured through um, count accounts from. First settlers and explorers of what they encountered when they actually um, came here, so this is, um, this is a whole bunch of accounts that are from people who 've only just come to the land before um, you know, before the settlers basically destroyed all of these systems um, so you mentioned with regards to uh, you know sheep and stuff, so sheep and cattle were very instrumental in the destruction of these vast um, fields of native tubers and native grains Um, Mm. because what would happen is the – so as you know, listeners, um, here in Australia, we don't have any hard-hooved animals that are native to Australia – so when the first, um, the explorers came, the colonists, et cetera, um, they came, the, the soil was very, it was very rich. So it had had generations and generations of cultivation. So it was quite friable and it was quite, um, sort of spongy.
0: Mm.
3: But when, um, when they came, you know, when these settlers came in with their, um, you know, their sheep and their cattle, they basically smooshed down and compacted the soil. But there was another disastrous thing that occurred. Um, so, when, uh, especially sheep, when they eat, um, the, the vegetable material, they bite right down to the base of the plant. Now, a lot of indigenous plants can't actually handle that because there's no other, um, animal that does that. You know, when a kangaroo eats, it kind of nibbles and it leaves some of the base leaves, so it's all good. And, um, so they basically decimated these huge fields, kilometers and kilometers of, um native tubers and native grains when they came in um the the um the the first europeans came in they saw that a lot of these uh fields had hayhocks what they call hayhocks so basically um first nations people would um gather up these um grains they'd put them in bundles they would put the bundles in bundles and they'd leave them there until the the grain was beaten from the stalks um and In their infinite wisdom, these people who came through thought, oh, maybe it's some kind of natural formation. Maybe these <laughs> – I know, right? And and so they – couldn't
2: possibly have been the blackfellas. Obviously, this wheat has <laughs> they were too picked simple. itself and tied yeah. it up into bundles.
3: And um, what they did is when they came through, they first noted um, these rolling fields and also kind of um, stratification. So they had these um, – I don't know what they're called – sort of terraces. Um, and what they thought – they called them gentlemen's parks – and they thought that they were naturally occurring because they were so lovely and there were these fields and they would just seem to be well, um, like they just were so nice that they must be a naturally occurring gentleman's park. Um and then there was also, and this is something that really a lot of people don't associate with First Nations, um, when uh, they first encountered, they, there were these villages and there were these um, buildings, these quite significant buildings, some of them held up to like 40, 50 people, uh, so they were built with wood and then they were daubed with clay. And these were quite, um, complex structures. It's not like a, you know, a bark hut that's mm. sitting there in the bush. These were, um, you know, with beams, with solid beams. They were built in place. They were daubed with clay and inside they had structures and, um, up top, what they would do is they would, um, have fires in the middle and then they have chimneys, like they'd have, um, structures that would take out the smoke. And there were whole villages of these structures, uh, and, You know, sometimes, um, I think one account said that, um, that the village could hold maybe a thousand people. And that is not something that we normally associate with, um, First Nations cultures here in Australia.
2: Absolutely Um, not.
3: So there are all these things and there are all these technologies.
2: Aboriginal people were hunter gatherers. Hunter
3: gatherers, yeah.
2: It's it's part of the justifying the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Oh Well, if they weren't yes. genuinely in occupation of the land, yes. then it's kind of fair game that we just came and stole it.
3: Well, it's interesting because the more I learn about what uh, these first uh, explorers and these first colonists saw um, and what they wrote down, the more I think about terra nullius and think about yeah. what kind of disconnect do you have to have in order to say, look at these villages of a thousand people, look at this technology, these wells that they build, yeah. um, these eel catching um uh you know, structures, uh, you know, all of this agriculture that's around and, and by all Western um uh sort of points, uh the the um the culture that was here was an agrarian culture. But it, by all Western points of having, look, you know, you cultivate the seed, uh, you save the seed, the surplus um, for later for replanting, um, all of these sorts of points. That's an agrarian culture, hmm. and yet it was totally ignored. Um, but now, you know, through people like and, Bruce And Pascoe, I think the
2: colonisers probably thought, you know, there's going to be too much paperwork. It's going to be like yeah. India. If we acknowledge that there's people living here, then we're going to have to go through all this. So let's just pretend that we yep. didn't just see everything we just saw. Mm. All of that housing, all of that conscious farming, all those hayhawks.
3: Well, some of them even saw it and they actually wrote it down, but it was just completely dismissed. Mm. Like it was like, well, it's just native work, you know, it's not going to be here for long, so it's not really anything important. Um, and you know, it really makes me sad because we are now having a a reviving, a revival of this sort of this stuff, but how much has been lost because of this destruction and because of this offhand dismissal? Um, you know, it makes me really sad because some of this stuff is absolutely amazing. It is, it's just, it was quite complex. It's, fascinating i definitely recommend Mm. people read bruce pascoe's book and the reason why i bought it up actually is because um it's just been announced that it's actually going to be made into a documentary so bruce pascoe's dark emu is going to be made into a documentary so if you can't be bothered reading the book you can watch the documentary to find out all of these things and i am really looking forward to that
2: Mm. yeah do you know who's making that
3: no i don't actually no Um, but anyway, um, we are going to go on. We are going to go on with our first interview, um, with Margie, Margarita Windich. Um, so we're going to get her on the phone. Um, we'll go to a couple of quick announcements and then we'll be back with Margie and, um, and I'll give, I'll read out a little bit about Margie.
4: a 3CR supporter.
3: 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have
2: fought for.
4: So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements.
2: On
3: 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Okay, welcome back to 3CR Green Left Radio. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Uh, we have on the line uh, Margarita Windich. Uh, she is a long-term activist, feminist and founding member of the Melbourne Stop the War Coalition. Uh, Margarita was one of the organisers of the legendary S11 protests in September of 2000. Welcome online, Margie. Good morning. Hello. Um, so, Margie, you um, were involved uh, intimately in the organising of um, the September 11 um, protest. Can you maybe um, – we we'd have now a generation who, who um, maybe don't know a lot about uh, the September 11 protests and what they were all about. Can you maybe just give a summary of what they were about?
5: S11 to, S, uh, to uh, S13 was quite spectacular in Melbourne because what it was, it came – uh, it was part of a, of a kind of global, um, social justice movement. And we had seen protests overseas in Genoa and Italy where the G8 was meeting. And then we had the World uh, Trade Organization that had been meeting in Seattle
4: in the US.
5: And then the World Economic Forum, which was a massive forum, um, uh, that wasn't elected, uh, with some of the richest people in the world and some of government officials were, planning to meet in Melbourne at the casino to basically decide how they can extract more profits from different countries across the world and throw more people into misery and uh, destroy the planet along the way. So um, the World Economic Forum decided to meet in Melbourne and the social justice movement started to organise. What we saw was a whole range of different uh, left-wing organisations um, and environmental organisations come together into the S11 alliance and there kind of work through what this protest should look like and what key messages should be sent to the public. So there was a lot of preparation and organising going on in Melbourne. Um a very like i said a broad coalition and i think that was really the strength of uh, what we call Mm. s11 now uh that it was able to draw in so many different groups who all wanted to protest economic and social injustice and also uh environmental destruction yeah that's why i said yeah it was called the s11 alliance and it had a whole bunch of different people from different socialist groups to anarchist-orientated groups, environmental justice groups and church groups involved. Um, and meetings were massive, were held very regularly, and then you also had little splinter groups from there that then focused on particular issues, for instance, you know, women, other one, other one was environment, etc. And the other thing that I think was really interesting was... Um, People were working out what should this protest look like. And there was a big debate happening. Should it just be like a rally? Should people just march onto the site and then maybe leave? Or just hang around? Or should it be a non-violent peaceful blockade? And that argument actually won out. And people wanted to basically say, activists wanted to say, look, you know, the World Economic Forum has got all the freedom of speech possible and don't Mm -hmm. really care how they use it. So how about we now... Um, so our freedom of speech, which is actually say, no, we don't want you to meet, you're not elected, you're not working in our interest or the interest of the planet, and we want to shut you down. So, yeah, that was kind of the, the lead-up to the big protest.
3: Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned there was a broad coalition um, involved, and it seemed to be, I, I spoke with you uh, last night about this, it seemed to be that, uh, it, that there were... No progressive, um, groups that were really against, um, the, the S11 protests. It was all on board at that stage. Um, even the unions, um, you know, we, we saw a documentary yesterday, uh, S11, this is what democracy looks like. And it was so heartening to see this contingent of union guys, you know, all coming in, all these union people, um, and, and moving into the march in support of, of the whole, um, protest. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, you know whether um, I mean obviously all of these groups had a different focus and different um, aims, et cetera, and there were a few um, different ways of doing things. Can you let me know how was there any conflict in how to do things and and how to organise and what to do? There's always
5: conflict, I guess, when you bring a whole bunch of people together, um, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um, overall I think the key message from people was that it should be a um, kind of non-violent people protest a, a militant protest which was about locating the site but with a strong focus on non-violence and to keep the message that we wanted to get out there which was really about protesting this global injustice by the richest people in the world mm. now um, I think what was interesting at the time too we had the whole S11 Alliance was in constant discussion with Trades Hall. And Trades Hall kind of was brought along to support the protest, which didn't mean that initially the big march, the Trades Hall march with thousands of trade unionists had planned to come onto the site, the casino site. But I think um, different sections of the union movement, which were kind of a bit more radical and had a lot more kind of um, uh, uh, the importance of also social justice issues beyond workers' rights, immediate workers' rights or employment rights, won out and, and, and the march came over to the site. Now, we had different, some different opinions, of course, you know, in the S11 Alliance. Um, and not everybody necessarily, you say, agreed with the majority decision. And you would maybe see different behaviour from some people that were necessarily not in the spirit of the whole alliance, but I think they were extremely minor and not really the, an issue at all. Um, you might have had some potentially minor transgressions from some people, but people were always back put in line by the majority of protesters who said, hey, we don't want you to do this or not happy to behave like that. Mm. So, and, and, and I think the, the reason overall it worked so well was because it was so well organised. And the idea of actually blockading and organising the blockades was super well prepared. It was like um, we had big plans, there were no mobile phones at the time, so we used walkie-talkies. We had a lot of marshals that were able to inform the public where the blockades were um, and, and helped lead people to the different blockade sites of the casino. Imagine it was a very big site with lots of different entrances. Mm. And, um, and there then you had different people playing a key role in helping to keep the blockade uh, safe, as safe as possible, to keep it entertained and to have chants and talks going uh, to make sure people could come and last the distance. And that was quite instrumental that it was so well organised. Now, that level of organisation was noticed across the world um, we had a very successful also first day, which means a lot of the delegates actually couldn't get into the World Economic Forum into the meeting. Consequently, the organisers put pressure on the then Labour government under Steve Grex and said, hey dude, we're gonna, we're gonna cancel this. This is looking really bad for you. You're a bit of a loser here. Steve Grex went, stuffed this and basically called the, uh, uh, like called the police in. There was already police there, but when mean called the police and called them in to basically smash up protesters to smash up the blockade, and Steve grex gave very clear orders to say this, these protesters have to be taught a lesson, uh, and if you need to use police brutality, you do that. And so he went on TV to basically say all these protesters are fascists, they're stopping of mm. the speech, and it ended up with uh, a lot of people in hospital.
3: Yeah, and uh, just on that note... um. You know, the, I I was actually um, involved in the S11 protests. Um, I was, along with many, many people there, a, a young, naive activist who may not necessarily have understood the true nature of the police in these sorts of uh, things and the true nature of the media and what they do, etc. cetera. Um, what stood out to me was the... Um, the, basically the police aggression. Uh, so I was there to witness uh, a police car running over a protester um, and just people beating on the bonnet trying to tell them that there was a protester running over and they just went straight across this person. You know, the the, um, the horses running through the crowd, uh, the police beating on the protesters, it was a really eye-opening experience. Can you maybe speak about um, the the role that police played in this and, and maybe the attitude of the police towards the protesters? Well,
5: um, the police is the armed wing of the state and it doesn't really matter if that's a democracy or if it's a dictatorship. The police will, um, they are, they are. Um, their role is to, to defend private property and uh, as some police officers told us, well, we are like dogs on the leash, which is played for our orders. And I guess um, what, I mean, what we saw at the protest is what different people would have and have experienced along the way by the police force already. Yeah. Uh we know that police is, is is always been very brutal towards indigenous people but also some other groups in our society, some minority groups. And we also know that they can play and have in the past at times played quite a a brutal role in, 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 in maybe some union protests. But what we saw in Victoria on 11 was, was I would say, on that scale quite unprecedented,
0: mm.
5: and and it was really, I guess, it brought to the fore that no matter what political system, in terms of a liberal, you know, Westminster system like democracy or dictatorship, uh, that the, the kind of the kind of civility, you know, in 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 in, 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 a, in a democracy will disappear as soon as you know uh, a prime minister or a premier goes no you're going to repress the rights of, 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 of this constituency now mm. and and that's exactly what we saw happening over three days the majority of time was incredibly spectacular like a beautiful festival of the oppressed incredible work being done by a whole bunch of committed activists and and the majority of time was extremely kind of peaceful so to speak but Like we said, there were the the odd spots where the police really asserted their power to show to the ruling elite that we have got this under control. And in the process, not just hurt a lot of people, but also I think a lot of people actually, like you said, for yourself too, um, were confronted for the first time to try and have to deal with the question of what role does police actually have, you know? Mm. Um, And I think that was an eye opener for a lot of people. The other, the other thing that happened at that protest is there's a whole bunch of people that after the protest burned their um, membership cards to the ALP uh, because of the role of the state government in so fiercely, fiercely repressing uh, a very um, um, a, a, a protest that was really all there about speaking to justice, social justice, and and and, and international solidarity, mm-hmm. and, um, and and it was quite interesting because. What you saw on the media was very obvious, unprovoked police brutality, but the headlines were completely contradictory to that. And anybody who just had their wits with them could see that this was a complete far.
3: Yeah. And um, just on the note of um, public perception, excuse me, about about the protest and about you know the anti-globalization sentiment that was around at the at the time um, there was a lot of support um, in the community uh, for the protest and, and what you know what they were protesting against and I know that um, you spoke to me about um, a nice story um, about when you were actually heading to the protest. can you maybe um, tell that for the listeners we we were really very nervous on the first day
5: of the protest because even though we we got a sense that this is big, yeah, in a way, mm. and it's captured the imagination of a lot of the population around. You know that the kind of uh, how globalization at that time has, has really be, be, become a real word, and we've started to see the effects of that kind of capitalist domination um, and 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 and, and, and that the, um, across the world of their resources. So, but we were unsure what that actually what that will mean for the for, for the extra protest. So it was really early, and we had to be at the site at 5:30. So we called a taxi to uh, a, a colleague of mine and I. We called a taxi to to the casino, and the taxi driver, you know, when we told him we were going to the casino, just looked at us. You know, was a migrant taxi driver. I think he might have been from Turkey. What I remember, just looked at us very strangely. Um, across the rear vision mirror. And we go, yeah, the casino. Um, but, but we're not gamblers. And he goes, are you going there to, are you going to the protest? And we go, yes, we're going to the protest. He said, are you helping to organize the protest? And we go, yes, we're helping to organize the protest. And he goes, oh my God, he goes, you guys are so beautiful. Uh, I wish I could be there, but I can't take the day of work because, you know, I need to feed my family. But, 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 you know, you're doing the right thing and I'm not going to charge you for the fare at all. Yeah. And it was just, we had this really lovely conversation in the taxi. And then it transpired over the three days that this was not an isolated um, story, that so we had a whole bunch of different people who were able to share similar experiences of not having been charged by taxi drivers. Um, we, 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 we'd come in, we'd be three days around you know, the casino site with lots of coffee shops there. We we we, Mm. some of us got free coffees and everything from the coffee shops. People were extremely generous in their support of people who were at the protest site and helped organise the site. I was because I was a marshal. I had a headband on. I had my megaphone. Uh, I was easily identified as somebody to you know play a bit more of an ongoing role. The amount of people that came to me, apart from wanting to find out what they could do. Uh, during the three days with food, with coffees, with drinks, uh, was quite phenomenal. And, That's lovely. and I think what it really showed for me, I think one of the most amazing things about these three days was to show what we can do when we're well organised. Like the mm. fact that our blockade was actually quite successful in a way. But um, it, and, and that means collaboration to work in a collective way. It brought out so much joy and, and, and when we get together, get together for a good cause, the, the sum is all, what you said, the sum of our parts is always bigger, yeah? We, we, we are bigger what we can mm-hmm. achieve than the sum of our parts. You saw real joy. It, 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 it brought the best out in us, I think. And, and it gave us a glimpse of what the world can be like when ordinary people are in charge and, and we organise on the basis of our needs, of the uh, importance of the environment, and 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 well-being of people. The the vibe was brilliant, um, and and I think that was one of the most beautiful things of the protest.
3: Mm. And Maggie, um, just in in summary, is there anything that we haven't spoken about, or anything that you want to sort of convey, um, just to wind up the interview? This has been fantastic, and and I absolutely loved your speech yesterday um, after the documentary. Um, what would you like to say um, to listeners about S11 and um, and the activi- activities?
5: One of the key messages for me of S11 was that we all have an important role to play. Uh, to participate in protests, to, to take a role in a protest and to show what we are capable of. Sometimes, you know, we always think, oh, some other people have to take the initiative or some other people will do it. Actually, we all have to do it mm-hmm. and we all can do it. And when you're in an environment with with a bunch of people that are there for the right reasons, which is because they care for human rights, for social solidarity, they have a love for humanity, everything we contribute is valued. And that, I think, is, that's what I saw there. You saw how we are able and capable of running society. And we are the ones who should because, um, we have the interest of the world at heart. And I think that's, that's one of the key messages I want people to take away with. Don't wait for other people to step into the breach. You've got a lot to offer. Um, and it's that, that, that sharing of our knowledge and skills that, That that is exactly what we need to demonstrate that another world is possible and that we need to create. So that I think is one of the key messages for me. And the other one would also be the importance of organizing and and being democratic in our movement. Um, Mm. I think that's the other key message for me.
3: Thank you so much, Margie. Um, it's absolutely great to have someone on, um, that has, you know, can talk from first-hand experience about a, um, you know, a a, a protest that basically changed the, the activist landscape here in Australia. Thank you so much, Margie. And, um, please keep going with all your activist stuff. We know that you're an absolute dynamo. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Thanks, Margie. Thank you for having me. All the best. Thank you. Bye. Catch you soon. Bye. And that was, um, Margarita Windich. Um, so yes, she was, uh, one of the organizers of the S11 protests and she's a long-term activist. She's, um, been, a, well, she's been an activist for a very long time. Quite a dynamo is our Margie. Um, so yeah, we, as I said, we've got a packed, um, a packed. NTU
2: uh, member and activist too, I believe.
3: Yes, that's right. Yes. So she's, um, now nah, she's, a, she's a total gem, Margie. Yeah. And um I think did you want to we are now on to our second interview actually, so yeah, maybe I think um we'll just
2: play a couple of announcements and then um we're gonna be talking to Bev Smiles, who's a um a hunter community activist against um the horrendous expansion of coal mining all across the Hunter Valley and beyond. So yeah, got Bev Smiles coming up soon. This is three, it's seven forty seven and you're listening to Greenleaf Radio.
4: For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The line-up includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, And more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR.
0: This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. by the workers, since 1976.
2: Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And on the line this morning, we have Bev Smiles. Bev is a community campaigner against the coal expansion in the Hunter region for over 15 years. Uh, Bev's own community of Waller has been... Uh, tragically destroyed by the large Peabody Energy Wilpinjong coal mine. Uh, Bev's worked closely with communities and families in the Hunter region impacted by coal mining pollution and has followed the poor planning and assessment process in New South Wales that fails to protect water sources, Aboriginal cultural heritage, biodiversity, productive farmland and rural communities. So welcome, Bev. Good
3: morning, Jane
2: and we 've got uh, Megan on the line here too so.
3: welcome Bev. Thank you got for studio, uh, really. yes, thank you for talking to us
2: um, so Bev, can you look like, uh, as we 've just mentioned, your community where you 've lived for quite some time voila has been destroyed by that um, wilpenjong mine um that 's probably a bit of a snapshot of what 's happened in other parts of the valley. Can you just Tell us a bit about how that played out and, and how the community, yourself and others, fought against that.
5: Oh, what happens with the uh, planning process is that they totally rely on assessments done by the company itself. Uh, so for our community, which is very quiet rural community, we, we were a uh, very close-knit community, worked um, on all sorts of um, social activities in our in our little township, village of Wallah. And uh, the first part of the mine that was approved in uh, 2006 uh, predicted that there'd be no impacts on the local community whatsoever. Uh, the company <laughs> had purchased properties that were right on top of where the coal was, but... Um, You know, the predictions were everyone else would be good, they'd promised heaps of jobs, Uh, the village would flourish, Um, and the exact opposite happened because the noise was horrendous. And they had to keep uh, buying people out because they couldn't meet the conditions of approval, uh, particularly for their uh, noise pollution. They couldn't meet those standards, so they... They just kept acquiring people who were being driven out of their mines, uh, from this horrendous, uh, mine noise. There was also what's called, uh, spontaneous combustion. That's coal just bursting into fire on the mine pit and releasing, um, sul- sulfur dioxide. Um, so, um, yeah, there, there was just horrendous impacts. And people in the end had to beg to get out of the place, uh, which left those of us, um, that were not quite that severely impacted, have left us stranded, um, and at the same time the mine kept expanding. So it is now a mine that, produce, that produces 13.5 million tonnes of coal per year, and they've been, uh, approved to expand to within one and a half kilometres of the village. The mine now owns all the village except for one person who's holding out against them and the rest of us, the few of us left in the in the district are on isolated properties with no friends or community left within the village itself.
3: Hmm. So it sounds like Bev that this mine has destroyed your community.
5: It has and it's and it's destroyed my community with the Department of Planning and the New South Wales government sitting back and watching it occur. Hmm.
2: That's
3: horrendous.
2: And at the moment, the Minerals Council is lobbying for changes to that planning process because they think it's too uh, harsh on... Uh, coal mine applications, as I understand. Can you, like, what are your well, views? Well, one
5: about? of the big wins we had in the Hunter Valley quite a number of years ago, uh, through a court case, uh, from the beautiful, uh, Peter Gray, who was the, the applicant. We actually won a case, um, that, that required the New South Wales government to consider scope three greenhouse gas emissions, so the scope three are the emissions from the coal being burnt wherever the the coal actually gets used. So we saw that as as a major win, um, that the the, the planning process was required to at least consider that. So since that time, every um, assessment for a coal mine expansion included the predicted volume of Carbon dioxide that would be released into the atmosphere by the burning of the coal from that mine, um, whether it was domestic coal in, in New South Wales, but the majority of coal mined in the Hunter Region is exported overseas. So that, so while we'd won that court case and the um, the assessment reports were identifying that volume. The decision makers weren't doing anything in regard to that until we had another court case which was one and that was against the Rocky Hill coal mine at Gloucester and um, the Chief uh, Judge of the uh, Land and Environment Court in New South Wales considered that those Scope 3 emissions um, were unacceptable and that was one of... Uh, the reasons why the rocky hill mine was uh, rejected by the land and environment court so that then gave us the ability to refer to that judgment in um, in, in consequent uh, mining decisions and <clears throat> and it um, did cause the decision makers um, to to really start considering the volume of greenhouse gas emissions so that's why the Minerals Council are now saying, oh, this is all t- too hard. People are actually seriously considering our impacts on the global climate. Uh, we want that knocked out. Thank you very much. The coalition government in New South Wales is is doing their bidding and has a, um, a bill up in Parliament as we speak um, to get rid of that um, provision in the planning process in New South Wales.
2: It's just mind-boggling.
0: Mm.
5: The,
2: the, the, can you just comment a bit about the the extent to which the goalposts are always getting moved in New South Wales for communities like Walla or anywhere else that are always battling these yep. mine as, expansions?
0: As,
5: as, as, particularly if it's one of the big multinational companies. <clears throat> so the Gloucester case was a very small company. Um, and they haven't um, appealed the decision. Um, so Gloucester, the community of Gloucester's had a great win. But the community of Bulga also won a court case in the Land and Environment Court um, against the expansion of the big Walkworth mine just near Singleton. And um, because they won that court case, um, the the chairman of Rio Tinto flew over from London sat in the office with Barry O'Farrell, who was the Premier at the time, and said, do something about this. So the New South Wales government changed the goalposts so that that uh, project could be resubmitted and therefore it was approved and the township of Bolga is is in serious strife, um, nearly to the same degree as what's, what happened to my community. So we've got... Small rural communities being wiped out across the Hunter region um, for coal mining expansions.
2: Hmm. Um, now Bev, we've looked a bit at the, the dodgy planning process and the uh, look like obviously probably the one of the biggest impacts is is carbon dioxide from all that coal going getting burnt. But can you also comment, the the Hunter Valley and surrounding areas like Mudgee or the Liverpool Plains or Gloucester, these are really typically quite good farmland, and you've got mines displacing farmland and then having really serious impacts on um, underground aquifers. And, yeah, can you comment a bit about the other impacts of mining apart from the co2 from the coal on the on the land and the the water
5: well that's another of our key issues is that there's no uh there's no serious intent to look at the cumulative impacts of uh the mining industry in new south wales so i mean we've got over 30 very large open cut coal mines in the hunter valley that are ripping through the groundwater systems, destroying them forever, um, dragging water from the landscape into the mines. Uh, that, that then will have what's called final voids or pit lakes left in the valley at the end of the process that will be full of um, highly contaminated water sitting. In the landscape. Um, and at the same time, the mining industry has now bought up, um, a lot of the water licenses, um, in the hunter because they are required to use a lot of water to wash the coal. They're supposed to be suppressing dust. Although in the middle of this drought, I can in the hunter at the moment is absolutely horrendous. Now, there actually isn't enough water in the system or enough will to, to properly manage the vast area of exposed open, um, country, uh, with huge piles of overburden and, and, and exposed soil. Uh, so, you know, the water use is the key issue and, um, you know, the legacy that's there now, um, with increased salinity from the, um, mines, and other contaminants, heavy metals, uh, being released into our waterways, is just not being taken into consideration yeah. because it's all too hard. And let's turn a blind eye and let's just keep continuing down the road of destroying farmland and people's ability to grow food um, in the regions where there's coal. Mm.
3: All of this is horrific. And the, we need people like you to talk up about this sort of thing because I don't think that the public fully grasp the destructive nature of mining companies to communities and to the landscapes um, around them. Um, this, is, this is all very good information and we, we need to get this out. This is great. Yeah. Well, it's
5: not for the want of trying. <laughs> I've been talking myself blind <laughs> for 15 years. Um, we do have some good journalists in The Hunter. Um, but other places, it's um, a bit difficult. But because of the farmland issue and that the farming community are really, you know, raising up and joining forces and, and, and you know, fighting back, mm. um, there, there have been some processes it put in place. Um, but as Zane um, mentioned earlier, the goalposts keep shifting. So while we think we've got something going on in the planning process that's going to work for us, right at the 11th hour, the New South Wales Minerals Council chops in and gets rid of most of the protections that we think we're just about to achieve. So the National Party now in you know New South Wales and Australia is the party for mining. They are not mm. any longer the party for farming.
2: Yes. And are you able to comment, Bev, uh, it's perhaps not quite as much of an issue in Hunter as it is in uh, Wollongong and parts of Sydney. But uh, I think a lot of listeners would not be super familiar with longwall coal mining under drinking water supplies and why that's such a dangerous thing.
5: Yes, well, it's another battle that we've been running for a very long period of time. A a group of people are fighting mining in the southern uh, coalfields area that you've just alluded to, so that's out the back of Sydney. It's under the Sydney water catchment special area where there's huge fines if people trespass onto the land, but the government is allowing mining under that Special area which is actually impacting on the um, river systems and and the upland swamp areas uh, that feed the water supply to Sydney um, and Wollongong, and we've been fighting on that um, on that area for a long time. We're finally starting to get the Sydney media to sit up and wake up. the fact of what's going on in their backyard and with this current drought in New South Wales, um, the water supply in um, Sydney's main dams is dropping, but we've been trying to point out for a long time that a a fair percentage of that water is dropping straight into coal mines that they're allowing um, to continue to... um, What happens with longwall mining is... They take the coal out
0: hmm. and
5: everything um, everything above that uh, actually drops or, as they say, subsides. That causes cracking right up to the surface and has cracked and dropped the bum out of quite a number of the, the uh, creeks and rivers um, that supply water to the dams. And the upland swamps are particularly significant because they're like great big sponges that hold rainfall and then just gradually release that water out that, that forms the base flows for all these uh, creeks and rivers. When they drop the bum out of the a, a upland swamp, which is going on right through the Sydney water catchment area, that sponge is no longer working. Uh, so that whole source of water is lost, and it's being lost into mines, then getting contaminated in the mines, and then the mines can pump it back out again because it's affecting their operations. So there's, it's just a
0: and huge when, when
2: nightmare When you talk about um, contamination, Bev, you've, you've talked about final mine voids or these, these lakes in the middle of these big open cuts and also yep. water migrating down these cracks into these underground mines. What sort of stuff is the water getting contaminated with?
5: Well, all the heavy metals in the coal. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got mercury, cadmium, you know, the, the whole heap of, of heavy metals, hmm. uh, plus a huge amount of salt. Hmm. Like coal, coal sits in, you know, layers of salt. It generates salt. Um, and all of that, then, you know, this fresh water that's, being dropped into mines is contaminated with all that stuff. Um, and then they pump it back out. Um, in, in a lot of places, they're required to put it through a desalination plant before they actually, you know, discharge it back into a water source. But then there's all the brine from the desal plant that then gets put back into the environment somewhere. And, uh, but again, there's no one looking at this cumulative impact of all of this mess that's going on.
2: Hmm. Alright, well, um, we should probably wrap up, but uh, there's a big blockade happening down here next week of this uh, International Mining and Resources Conference. Do you have any message for the people that are going to be blocking the doors at Crown Casino? Yeah,
5: do your best and do your hardest because those of us living with mining, and particularly coal mining, uh, are really, you know, suffering. And Mm. we need a message put out there that mining coal is bad in all ways. It's bad for the local community, bad for our water, definitely bad for our climate. And it's time to stop giving the spin out there that our economy relies on coal mining because coal mining is actually, in the long run, destroying our economy.
2: Hear, hear. Yes, yeah. All right, well, um, keep fighting a good fight, Bev. You do, yeah, thanks, um, Bev. You do excellent work, and thanks for having a chat with us this morning.
5: Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity.
2: Cheers. All yeah, right. Bye. Catch you. Right, yes, uh, Bev smiles. smiles, long-term yeah.
3: activist in the Hunter Valley, trying to salvage what's left of her community. So that's a real story about the real impacts of mining, and um, that's mining here in Australia. Can you imagine what they were doing? They're doing in countries where uh, the government lets them get away with a lot more,
2: mm, um, where so workers have relatively less exactly, strength and ability to. And-
3: Indigenous people are seen as, you know, well, it's not really something to, that's important. So um you mentioned the blockade IMARC. So just for people who may not actually know about it, who might be living under a rock for um, a couple of months, so a blockade IMARC, so IMARC is the International Mining and Resource um, uh, Conference. Uh, the blockade is happening from Monday the 28th of October, that's this Monday, to Thursday the 31st of October, daily from approximately 6am. Uh, the mass blockade starts on tuesday the 29th of october but there's several activities that are happening on monday if you can get down there on one of those days they really need you and if you can get down there and, and um, you know show your solidarity um people like bev in, in communities that have been affected by mining around the world um will really appreciate it
2: can I? Yep. Alright, so we'll just play. We're running a bit behind schedule. We'll just play a quick announcement. Then we'll have a condensed version of the activist calendar. And then we're going to talk to Pablo Layton. There's been a bunch of big protests happening around the world uh, Lebanon, Ecuador, Haiti, Chile. Yep. So Pablo's going to be talking to us about Chile in yes. particular. Yep. Uh, yeah, so stick around. You're on 3CR. This is Green Left Radio.
0: 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows.
2: If you
0: come to Dengar, 3CR Community Radio,
3: please
6: subscribe now. 3CR Community Radio.
3: 3CR Community Radio.
0: Suscribete
5: ahora.
0: Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe
1: to 3CR. 3CR is selling
0: Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
2: Alrighty, welcome back. It is time for the Running Late Activist Calendar. Uh, So... One thing to mention is 3CR is going to be covering the iMark blockade all next week, particularly breakfast shows. So stay tuned into 3CR to keep abreast of developments, uh, down at Crown Casino and to continue hearing from more. Uh, exhibition Centre. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> at the, the exhibition yeah. Centre. <laughs> well, near, next
3: to the Crown Casino. Near,
2: yeah. Near Jeff's shed. Uh, so yeah, keep on tuning into 3CR to, Uh, Stay up to date about that. There is a uh, donation drive happening at the moment until the 6th of November. Uh, Fitzroy Learning Network has been helping the Fitzroy community for 30 years. They help migrants, refugees, asylum seekers learn skills needed for their Australian lives. They're currently asking for donations to assist in updating essential IT equipment to improve the quality of their training courses and community projects. So visit FLN. Fitzroy Learning Network, FLN. dot org. dot au to to donate, and uh, your donation will be much appreciated. Alright, activist calendar. Uh, Today, GHD rule out Adani. Engineering firm GHD is working on Adani's mega coal mine. Adani can't build the mine by themselves; they need specialised companies like GHD, to help them. That's at 11.30am at 180 Lonsdale Street in the city. And uh, word on the street is that there's uh, a bit of dissent within the workforce of GHD about Adani. So keep the pressure on. It's working. Uh, vigil justice for Melody. Uh, remember Melody Polan Bruno, a Filipina trans woman murdered in Wagga Wagga on September 22, 2019. Uh, it's at 6.30 at the State Library. Uh, celebrate 45 years of Friends of the Earth. That's at 8 o'clock tonight at the Gasso, 484 Smith Street. Get in there. Uh, so, Saturday, October 26th, Glitterous playing uh, at the Tote at 7 o'clock for accomplished, unapologetic, and fearless female musicians who roar through uncompromising and unforgettable punk rock shows. And if memory serves correctly, Glitterous, uh, um four women who work as public servants in um, Canberra as their kind of day job. Uh, totally awesome <laughs> band, and you must check them out. Uh, so head along to the Tote tomorrow night. Uh, Indigenous Resistance to Mining Forum, Saturday 26th of October at Vic Trades Hall. Uh, join us to hear from Indigenous frontline communities on the struggles against mining and resource extraction before the upcoming blockade of the International Mining and Resource Conference. So we just heard from Bev Smiles. Um, it would be really great if you were able to get on to Trades Hall and hear from some Indigenous voices from around Australia and around the world. Um, there is Jampijma Ned Hargraves from the Northern Territory. Aunty Vicky McCabe from, uh, uh, where where there's, uh, uranium mining, as I understand, uh, Marisol Mapuche, uh, woman from Chile, uh, Jeffrey Jikwa from the Lani tribe in West Papua, and Tim Buchanan, a Wiradjuri person who I suspect will be talking also about the coal mining in the Hunter Valley, um, Yeah, so they'll be looking at the lived experience in mining, affected communities, resistance, post-extractive futures, solidarity, and activism. And, yeah, that's Saturday, tomorrow uh, at 2 p.m. at Vic Trades Hall. And, yeah, Tuesday, October 29, Hellchild features at Passionate Tongues. Uh, That's at the Brothers Public House, 42 Johnson Street, Fitzroy, uh, Saturday, November 2, Defend Rojava, Turkey, Get Out of Syria. That's at the State Library at 4 p.m. All right, we are just going to play a quick another announcement, and then we'll get Pablo Leighton on the phone to talk about the big uprising has gone down
4: in Chile. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines, or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads, and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the inquiry into drug driving reform, petition 117.
3: A 3CR supporter. Okay, you are listening to 3CR's Green Left Radio, 855 on your AM dial. It is 817. And we have on the phone uh, Pablo Layton, who is a Latin American academic. He is the editor of Latitude's Latin American research platform. He also researches the concept and practices of propaganda in the 20th century and current media, and specifically on the history of audiovisual culture in Chile and Latin America since the 1970s. He's taught at numerous universities in Australia, United States, Chile, and Central America, and has worked as a film director, screenwriter, and editor in, on several fiction and documentary productions. Uh, welcome, Pablo.
6: Well, uh Thank you. Thank you for having
3: me. Excellent. So, um, we've, we have seen, um, uh, many uprisings around the world, including Chile. Um, could you give a bit of a background on what's happening and what the reason why it's happening in, in Chile, uh, for people who have not, um, who are not really as familiar, um, with what's happening?
6: Yes, sure. Um, well, I have to say that, um, the media, international media, Australian media, uh are putting the chilean um uprising together with the one in ecuador that, i think that's the most similar one but uh um i think this is uh, a little different i might not be
0: objective here uh, as i am chilean but uh, this is uh, quite unprecedented and
6: uh, it's very historical for latin america and beyond uh, but the short answer to the reasons is that, uh, Chile was the first country applying neoliberalism in 1975. Mm. Usually historians, economic, eh, economists, uh, they say that it started with, uh, Thatcher and Reagan, 1980, 81. But, um, eh, was Chile the first one, uh, and You know, thanks to the help of the famous, uh, you know, Milton Friedman and and Fred, Mm Fredrich Hayek that went to Chile, advised Pinochet and installed the policies that are still there in 2019. So that's the rebellion about, um, um, and it's Chile again was, has been cited as a model for every single Latin American country, uh, uh, you may know that there are elections this Sunday in Uruguay, mm. Argentina, and um, they were all the right-wing candidates were putting, we want to be like Chile, and uh, they're now they're all backtracking. They're saying we cannot go, <laughs> we cannot go the Chilean way, uh, and I, well, I'm not a fortune teller, but I think the left is gonna win in Argentina, in Uruguay, uh, Sort of easily because the Chilean Chilean case. So that's what is uh, the origin of that. But uh, I can go further. I don't know.
3: Was there one thing that was that set it off in Chile? I know that there's a lot of um, you know factors etc. But was there one thing that just basically sparked the whole thing?
6: Well, uh, the the single incident, uh, or I mean, the single incident that started this was the race. Uh, of the Metro Subway um, uh, ticket uh, and all the media are citing this and uh, all the media are struggling to explain this uh, how a, only a 3% uh, rise uh, made the whole country to paralyze in, in a day or two. The, the protest started on Monday, uh, October the 14th. Uh, by the 4th of 5th day um, there was a mass evasion and a movement that Basically, the repression, of course, by the police uh, got out of hand. People got angry, angry, but then went out to the surface, and, uh, and started as riots, uh, burning very symbolic uh, sites, places, and um, and then uh, went out of control. Uh, and uh, there is no leader. It's very spontaneous, but uh, it. it, it to, make the, sh- the answer short, people are saying, and, and the poster, posters around, uh, saying it's not the 30 pesos, you know, that, that's equivalent have a percent ticket, uh, I don't know, uh, 5 cents of a dollar or something like that is 30 years. So 30 years, mm. um, that is when democracy started, because of course, under the dictatorship, there was, there were many rebellions. Uh, so, but, uh, I know there were other rebellions also in 2006 and 2011, but it never got this massive and so clearly, a, a, you know, like a historical rupture, you know, it's really, a, there is a before and an after
2: now. Mm. Um, Pablo, are you able to comment on, uh, in particular, the, the mining workers um, coming out to support these protests that have been, as I understand, initiated by students in the cities?
6: The mining workers, yeah, well, uh, we have to say enough that um, uh, I'm Australian now, Chilean Australian, and um, not many Australians know that BHP owns the largest copper uh, mine in the world, that it happens to be in Chile, that it was uh, discovered slash privatized in uh, 1919 when, the, you know, a centralized labor type of government was there. And, um, uh and BHP pays, I don't know the exact figure, but it's like 5% of taxes, probably. so, um, and that's known as the salary of Chile the cover, you know, uh, mining. And, <clears throat> and they've been always very combative on the miners, uh, uh, and they joined and, uh, every single union, all the unions, like we were destroyed by Pinochet and in neoliberal democratic times, uh, you know, the, the unionism in Chile is, I don't know, it's less than 10 percent uh, because it's, it's very difficult mm. legally to get harassed, etc. So they, they're they joining and um, they, uh, that hasn't been so prominent because <laughs> the country's paralyzed and, you know, uh, the protests uh, are daily. I checked late this morning and it's they not stopping and now it's uh, now it's less looting. Uh, and there is more people on the street, but the, the copper mines, uh, miners are, are uh, still, uh, I think, on a strike, but it hasn't uh, been so prominent because, um, uh, well, I, I, I think DHP might be really nervous but I'm sure they're nervous about it. Hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know uh, the state right now, you know, what, what's happening, if there is a strike uh, right now or not.
3: So, has there been any um, sort of uh, spoken list of demands um, uh, that the Chilean people yeah. have, um, have have spoken about?
6: That's a great question because ABC, SBS, um, they're interviewing these um, intellectuals uh, of the neoliberal system that yeah. they they're, they're they're saying this is uh, an amorphous, uh, you know, and they use the word lumpen many times movement that mm-hmm. uh, that is not having a, a, a petition a list of petitions but it's so clear and you you any chip on the street right now uh, that you know housewives and you know unemployed and they will tell you right away like five at least uh, a new constitution the same constitution that's you know Chet in staff you know, fraudulent election in 1980, mm. uh, pensions, that's with, uh, the superannuation system by Spock and kitten copy, the Chilean system that's private, there is no public alternative, and they speculate with that money and so on. Uh, These uh, private companies and um, education, especially, that started this uh, uh, movement in a way in 2006 and 11 that is almost entirely privatized. that also how can in 1989 to an extent and uh and health, uh, everything basic, everything is privatized in Chile, every single aspect of, of life is privatized. So, um, they're calling for uh to renationalize uh, pretty much everything because the subway was the of uh. The only company left pretty much uh, that is was based in, in public mm.
3: hmm. and um we we don't have a lot of time, but can you maybe um summarize um the you know what what everything about sort of the, the Chilean uprising and the important um you know ideas that we need to take out of it
6: yeah well uh that uh, I think it's uh, well, going back to the beginning, I think it's very symptomatic for the world, actually, that where neoliberalism started uh, is being finally fully challenged. Chile will never be a model and example, especially for third-world Latin American developing countries. And uh, and uh, Chile was the world champion in free trade agreements. Uh, it was also a model of free trade agreements. The DPP-11 uh, that Australia is part of wants to be part of also being challenged and probably will be uh, challenging and, you know, Chile may not become a part of it. So um, eh, I don't know if everything is going to end well. Uh, you know, uh, the military is still out, uh, out, mm-hmm. out there in the street and, you know, you need a big incident, like, you know, I really don't want that to happen, but a, a bomb killing two people set, you know, like a, you know, sort of terrorist attack like they would call it, that could completely derail the movement. Uh, I don't know. Uh, um, but uh, it's, I think uh, there is a before and after and politicians in Chile and worldwide have to say, you know, this uh, inequality is uh, very dangerous. So that, mm. uh, they, the social Democrats, the Labour here, they have to pay attention to it because uh well, you would go for fascism, you know, neo-fascism, you know, uh, Trump, uh, One Nation, you know, Palmer, et cetera, or, mm-hmm. um, or you create, or you go back to the state, uh, the safety nets that, um, may avoid these explosions, you know, in the future. Yeah, mm.
3: thank you very much for, for coming onto our show, um, Pablo, and highlighting uh, what is happening in Chile. Um, uh, hopefully, we can have you on uh, again as uh, things unfold. Thank you very much, sure. and um, okay. thank you for talking to us.
2: Cheers, okay, Pablo. thanks for. Okay, cheers. Bye.
3: That was, uh, Pablo Leighton, uh, Chilean and academic talking about the uprising in Chile. Uh, we're almost finished. Stick around for Beyond Zero, uh, all the latest in environment news. And also tomorrow, um, stick around or come along to, uh, the Solidarity Breakfast, uh, show, 7.30 on Saturdays. Word. Thank you very much. Oi Enjoy wa. your weekend.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital.